Connections from Capital. Hello and welcome to the next in our podcast series from Capita on the theme of the great opportunity. I'm Justine Green and we continue to look at the opportunities and choices organisations need to make to plan, rebuild and come back stronger during such unprecedented times. Our focus this time is on data and AI and its application in the justice system. Our guests are Professor Richard Burke, Professor of Criminology and Statistics at the University of Pennsylvania, joining us from Philadelphia. Hello, Richard. Good morning or afternoon, whatever it is there. (laughs) And Doug Brown, Capita's Chief Data Scientist and Data and AI Lead for Capita Consulting. Hello, Doug. Hi. Hello there. Hi. Now, when we think about data and AI, things like chat box spring to mind. But obviously, there's so much more to the picture. So, Richard, let's kick off by demystifying AI. What's it really all about? Well, it's really just a fancy pocket calculator. Um, All it's doing is arithmetic calculations. There's nothing remotely like human intelligence. Um, And it basically reproduces what humans are already doing, but typically more accurately, more fairly, and even more transparently. Doug, what about AI in practice, its application? I'm thinking in particular about how AI is used on people, its impact on us citizens. Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting topic, actually. The business adoption and application of AI uh, are accelerating the creation of new sources of value for both consumers and citizens. And this has profound implications for our understanding and engagement with the world and indeed the connections which we make with each other. Um, I think that Richard was saying quite rightly is that a lot of the, the basis of AI is based in the 1950s from a maths point of view. I think what has changed in terms of the adoption and the application of AI is the advanced technology for us to be able to try and manage the volume and the veracity of the data that we generate in our everyday lives. Yeah, and I would just add to that that um, as important as the algorithms is the data on which the algorithms are trained. And there have been not only great advances in the power of computers and the power of algorithms, but also enormous advances in the scale and availability of data, which is essential if you're going to do any kind of machine learning. Okay, well, let's get both your thoughts on how data and AI has helped us navigate through this period of unprecedented disruption. Has it been useful, Richard? Uh, That's a difficult question because it depends on who you ask. Um, Certainly in the private sector, uh, there's lots of evidence that these calculations can be extremely useful. Everything from financial markets to advertising uh, to medical applications. Uh, But in other areas like criminal justice, we still really haven't demonstrated that we do a whole lot better than current practice. And then there become a whole range of difficult ethical issues that are at this point unresolved. So it's a mixed grade card for many applications, but there are some that are really impressive. And Doug? There are a couple of themes that are coming through at the moment, and those are around the, uh, the trust and the transparency and the transformation of some of the existing practices as a result of COVID, for example. But I think that um, as businesses continue to explore the, the actual technological and data, we also come up against ethical boundaries of how we recreate human uh, intelligence using machines and data and and the actual intimacy of our personal and professional lives, which raise complex questions regarding truth, transparency, and the actual transformation of the actual data itself. So 
I think the jury's still out in terms of who's actually benefiting from this, but there's no doubt that there has been uh, certainly significant value that has been created. And the COVID situation that we find ourselves in has actually created the actual conditions to adopt and explore the application of, uh, of the use of data to create value. All right. Well, next, let's talk about AI in the justice system. organizations. Richard, as I mentioned earlier, you're Professor of Criminology and Statistics at the University of Pennsylvania. So how does AI integrate within the justice system? Well, there are a variety of applications currently being tried. Uh, The two most prominent, one is what's called predictive policing, which is you allocate police resources, let's say patrol cars, on the basis of forecasting where and when there is a risk of a lot of crime. Uh, the problem there is it's very hard to do better than police departments already do. The other application is what's called risk assessment. So, for example, before a judge, let's say, releases an individual on probation or before a parole board releases somebody from prison, it's commonly required that there be some assessment of what's called future dangerousness. That's a forecast. And the algorithms do that quite well, but there's no question that we can be more fair, more accurate, and more transparent than, for example, some judge deciding, based on personal experience or background, how a particular offender should be treated. Doug, what have you learned through your work at Capita Consulting into the application of AI in the UK justice system? The ability to access and curate and manage the data assets that uh, a lot of the organisations have um, is one of the key aspects to where we need to start from. And so within the UK, and I'm sure it's similar to the actual US, um, that data is held in various different areas. It's siloed, it's owned by different people that are operating across the, the, the actual common estate, uh, you know, in terms of, of the actual justice itself. So whilst the silos aren't too much of a problem, it's the, it's the question of not necessarily how you break down the silos, but how you bridge between them to allow people from a regulation point of view and from a degree of trust as to how to share that data to improve the quality of the decision-making by various different officials that are operating within the court environment, within the actual justice itself, or within the actual social services. So I think that multi-agency sharing is very important. I think secondly is that that what we found is that we're not looking to use AI um, to actually replace human decision-making. What we're trying to do is trying to amplify and improve the quality of the decision-making which are made at different um, stages of the justice process. I think one other aspect is quite interesting is that um, uh, this question for Richard really, because I know that AI is used in both ends, if I can use that phrase, in terms of the actual justice you know, system in the US. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's right. If you look at the front end being where you allocate police resources and the back end, how you supervise people after they're released from prison, that's absolutely right. And I'm guessing we should also within that, there is some element in terms of how that data is used. Because just because we've got the data and we've got the actual capability to be able to apply those algorithms, there are a number, I guess, of different factors. Common example is that we often use prior record as a key indicator of future risk. But prior record depends upon having previous contacts with the criminal justice system, for example, arrests. And there will be claims made that because of racial 
disparities in how police are allocated, let's say in the United States, for example, African-Americans are going to have longer prior records, other things equal, just because there are more police in their neighborhoods, which expose them to more arrests. Some people argue that's an indication of bias. Other people argue that, quite in contrast, we're allocating police to where the crime is, and they're driven primarily by 911 calls, so the police are actually being responsive to folks in those communities. So controversies are arising not because of the technology itself, but actually human involvement within it. Taking a global view for a moment, let's get both your thoughts on how AI can assist justice systems in different parts of the world. Richard? Well, different parts of the world is very heterogeneous. Uh, If you look at Europe, for example, there is lots of work. I've been in touch, for example, with people in the Netherlands and in Germany, where these sorts of general tools are being tried out in criminal justice settings. And certainly in the business sector, because many of the firms that are in the forefront of this are international firms. So I I think there, there are differences in the developed world. It's mostly a matter of degree. Of course, there are also concerns about privacy and about the use of these tools, for example, in China, and the repression of dissent. What's interesting about that is one aspect of that is the actual use of the recognition of facial features to be able to manage um, various different peoples to actually identify, because obviously clearly identity is one of the key facets that that we want to look at. And I guess the actual reaction that various different societies have had, um, especially with, within the UK, where and now that you know, some of the Met Police, for example, are not going to be using that as part of their usual you know, activities. I don't, I don't know what you've seen um, you know, in the actual US around that. It's a fascinating topic because it brings up a couple of different points. Just want to cycle back to the beginning and mention that's an interesting example where something which is just calculations looks to be something that's intelligent. I mean, it's human vision after all. Um, but all it is is analyzing pictures. Um, you, you lay a grid over pictures and then there are what's called pixels. And those pixels have properties like color and brightness. And after looking at thousands of pictures, computers can learn which features of those pixels are associated with one person versus another. So it's not mysterious at all, even though it's a ripe area for starting to see um, artificial intelligence looking like human intelligence. It's not. While there are certainly problems with eyewitness testimony, and there are certainly problems with algorithmic facial recognition, Uh, They're not really that different. (laughs) They both have difficulties that need to be resolved. There's racial bias in eyewitness testimony, and there can be, unfortunately, sometimes racial bias in facial recognition. Now, something you've already touched on, Richard, one of the big questions that there's been for a while is whether we will be able to predict criminal behavior before it happens. And is AI the best way to do this? Well, the answer is yes, in a probabilistic sense, no, in a literal sense. So um, we can do a pretty good job of predicting which individuals, when released from prison, are going to be rearrested, let's say, for a crime of violence. Um, And that accuracy is pretty high. And also experienced criminal justice decision makers can do much the same thing, maybe not as well, but that's not a surprise. But it's only a probability. It's not a certainty. And so we can predict with, let's say, high confidence, but not complete confidence. The application of the technology is there to try and actually reduce the amount of uncertainty within the various different variables which may make a decision as to whether a person is going to offend 
or indeed whether a person's going to actually reoffend once that they've actually been convicted of you know a particular offence in the first place. I can see how AI can be used as a, a trusted partner, as a, as another voice or another input into the human decision as to whether certain people should be uh, either um, certainly incarcerated or kept within the system or actually indeed released. Remember, judges are making the exact same forecasts. Here in Pennsylvania, where I live, for example, the state of Pennsylvania, judges are required when they sentence to assess the future dangerousness of the person who they're sentencing and build that into the sentence. That's required by law. So they're doing it anyway. And as Doug rightly points out, the question is, can we develop a partnership between the algorithms and the decision makers so that better decisions are made? Okay, well, in our final part next, we'll look more at the challenges. So, Richard and Doug, why is the adoption of AI not as easy as we might be led to believe? What are the challenges for organisations? Well, Doug's already mentioned some critical ones, which is it turns out that there has to be some cooperation across data providers, different agencies, which historically hasn't been there. And so there's a lot of learning that people have to do to make this happen. But then there are also technical problems because two different agencies might have their data in different formats. They might define key outcomes differently. And so along with the problem of getting people to cooperate, you have to get the algorithm to be able to talk to different structures of data. And that can be very challenging. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. I think the the issue around trying to actually democratize data in the fact that it, as an asset, can be used and applied in different ways to create further insight because you want that actionable insight. And organizations, as we've seen over the actual COVID period, from a technological point of view, the ability to to enable people to work, you know, their workforces to work from home, the ability to be able to share data, to be able to communicate and connect differently. That is still, uh, whilst we've seen it on a people basis, it's doable. It's just that companies need to invest more in that to surface and analyze data in a way which they could make it actionable and link it to a tangible or intangible outcome. And AI has its controversies. I'm thinking of facial recognition, for example. Well, yes. Um, anytime you have consequences to decisions made, and if those consequences are important, you're going to have stakeholders who are going to be at least uneasy. And that's healthy. Uh, and, but it's, it's also inevitable. These types of cases, uh, whether it's the facial recognition, whether it's the management of personal data, um, it does help and advance the actual discussion um, because the actual law, when it comes to sort of digital adoption, the law itself is fairly analog in the fact that it's trying to catch up. The actual applications and the ability to apply it to get insight is way in front of the actual ability for the law to actually legislate for it. So that self-governance and the ability to try and manage that from a regulatory point of view is is where I think some of the tension that we're seeing within the behaviour and adoption for businesses and citizens alike. Sometimes we forget that subject matter experts are important too. It's not just software engineers um, or criminal justice officials who need to talk to one another and work together. But to take a simple example, here in the United States, a particular crime such as domestic violence, 
is defined differently in different jurisdictions. And only experts in criminal justice and law would know that. And it's very easy for a software engineer to treat them as alike, when in fact that would be a very bad mistake. So you really do need a wide variety of people involved in this, which again is healthy. The more who can get involved in this, the higher quality at the end. You took the words out of my mouth. I was just going to ask you, as the machines take over, how important is it not to forget the human touch? I don't think machines are going to take over. (laughs) I'm going to really stress that. I think, as Doug pointed out, we're talking about a partnership or a collaboration. And in fact, there's actually software being developed uh, in the criminal justice system, which is meant to enhance that cooperation. I mean, take an automatic pilot in an airplane. Um, It's being flown by a computer, but there's always room and there should be room for the pilot to intercede if something looks to be inappropriate. And that's really fundamental. And I don't think anybody is arguing uh, that when at least it's practical to do so, humans remain in the loop. Again, that's a great point. I think the AI itself is it should be developing the use for data for good, for society, for consumers and for citizens. Um, and we do know that it's it really should be here, um, as Richard was saying, around a partnership. It, it should be here to amplify the human brilliance, the the ability for people to make decisions based on their own professional experience, uh, but to be aided with that, to be able to allow them to to be challenged, to take different views, but ultimately it still should be those humans who are making the decision, especially within certain areas in which we operate. And certainly justice and crime has to be one of those areas which you would not want to turn that over to um, Uh, various machines, uh, whereas in commerce or indeed in terms of trading, for example, financial trading, where a lot of it is already carried out um, by various machine-to-machine, the actual human-to-machine relationship is really key in the quality of the decision-making. Well, that rounds off this episode. It's certainly been a fascinating conversation. I hope you've enjoyed it. Richard, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. And Doug, thanks to you too. Our pleasure. Next time, we'll continue to explore the great opportunity with more experts from business, government and academia. So do join us again. Also, do subscribe to this series so you won't miss an episode. From me, Justine Green, Richard and Doug, it's thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.